Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Fandoms, Culture, and Perhaps a Few Murders, where we discuss exactly that, fandoms, culture, and a few murders. I am your host, Spade. With me as always is... Feline, Meow. And... Alpha. Hey, y'all. And the topic of discussion is rivalries. The definition of rivalry is competition for the same objective or for superiority in the same field. Bugs Bunny versus Mickey Mouse... Coke versus Pepsi, Marvel versus DC, Android versus iOS. Today we will talk about some rivalries that people may not have heard about or feel should be talked about more. So we're going to kick things off with Alpha. All right. So my first one is Twilight versus Harry Potter. For those that have been living under a rock and don't know either of these franchises, look them up because they're both way too big to go into fully. But hitting you with just the basics, Harry Potter is an orphaned wizard child dumped with his non-magical aunt and uncle. He one day finds out that he's magical and gets an invite to a school of wizards and witches to learn spells and potions. Hijinks ensue, written by J.K. Rowling. Twilight is a 2008 young adult romance written by Stephanie Meyer involving a blank slate of a female lead whose parents are divorced and she moves to live with her dad to an always cloudy town where she falls in love with an immortal teen vampire who is enrolled in the same school. Vampiric hijinks ensue. Getting to the rivalry part. Rumors have it that it started with Twilight pulling on the teen demographic, mostly female readers, just as the series is wrapping up with its audience, growing in conjunction with the characters, changing from wide-eyed fascination and youthful mysticism to teen angst and hormones. Readers and moviegoers flocked away from fantasy adventure to fantasy softcore romance. And with every fandom comes with toxic members, starting in comparison with the complexity of Hermione Granger compared to the bland textbook definition of the Mary Sue that is Bella Swan bleeding into the comparing the actors and actresses and the caliber for both films. The flames got fanned when Twilight writer Stephanie Meyer declared that Edward Cullen would kill Harry Potter in a fight. But as with every fandom rivalry, the flames that once burned with the heat of a thousand suns is now a dead pile of smokeless ash. I am a Harry Potter fan. I will say that Harry Potter would have won this, in my opinion, just based on books and movie sales alone. I don't know what you guys' opinion are on that. But, I second, yeah. and she probably thirds it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, werewolves and stuff exist in the world of Harry Potter. I'm sure wizards and witches have ways to deal with them and handle it if necessary. Like, a sparkly vampire does not strike fear to me just because you run fast does not make you a threat And look moody. Right, and just the full-on pauses and the look-aways and the... <sighs> I will be of the opinion that I think the reason why Bella seems to be so blank is probably to put the preteen girls in their shoes to, you know, kind of be like yeah. that outsider in school and then they want some handsome... And vampire is thought about as a, like a romantic subgenre, so to speak. I was just going to say, she's a your name here. Yeah, dude, blank slate, just like they do in like the beginning of like RPGs and shit like that. You just pick your character here, insert you. Harry Potter wins it over for me. Yeah, in terms of franchise, but I will say for the like brief moment where I was kind of into Twilight, Edward Cullen was not attractive. And generally, I like vampires. He was just too pale. <laughs> I am a huge Bram Stoker's fan. I am a huge vampire fan. They killed it for me. Anne Rice. Anne Rice. Oh. I have read so many Anne Rice books. I've read so many of them. Oh, the storylines. Oh, Mayfair Witches. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Anne Rice is awesome. You got to get the probably the last couple of books she worked on before her death. I, I don't recall the names of them. I've read them all and they bleed a lot into my brain. Mm. So I'd have to look at the title, read the synopsis and be like, yes, I've read this one. Yes, I've read this one. No, I have not read this one. But I read so many books. All the trashy romance novels, too, just kind of bleed in together. And the next thing you know, me and Gary Oldman are together in my brain. And it's it's beautiful, but scary. <laughs> and my next one is kind of my favorite because it's really fucking funny. It's it's one of those, like, seek and you shall find, you reap what you sow type of shits. All right, so this one is Tumblr versus 4chan. And if anybody ha- doesn't, hasn't heard of it, it started with a Tumblr post in 2014 asking for its fellow Tumblrinas to get together and take down 4chan, the online version of the bridge trolls love to live under while they take your goats for their lunch. The post reads, it's time to shut down 4chan. Join us July 4th to celebrate our freedom from racists by shutting down 4chan and etc." The plan was to flood the site with comics, poetry, essays, and overwhelm them with corrections to their awful lies while letting them know how the world thinks of them, also using the hashtag ShutdownForChan. 4chan was, of course, ready for it. On the day of battle, the Tumblrinas came in full force, flooding the site with puppies, flowers, poems, joy-joy feelings of happy, happy love, 
and just like the first time in bed ended well before an hour and just as anticlimactic. Tumblr soon found out what happens when you poke at the troll. A tsunami of porn, gore, and anti-feminist rhetoric flooded Tumblr with 4chaners using their most popular tags to point every tag you searched so it was covered in viscera and porn. To counter the offensive material, Tumblrina started to spam their favorite tags with selfies to which 4chaners responded with photoshopping the faces of the Tumblrinas onto porn pics and then posting them using those same tags. I was gonna say that sounded like a bad move. Yeah, so bad. One 4chaner pretending to be a Tumblrina posted an image labeled it Operation Burn 4chan, where it instructed Tumblrinas to show them not to mess with us by having them load up the 4chan site they wanted to attack and then put a certain command prompt into the computer's notepad. The command prompt was to delete the Windows operating system. A reported 42 computers was bricked. That's really funny. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the funniest parts for me. An assumed Tumblr had then created a petition on change.org to have 4chan shut down that got a little over 900 signatures. Not to be outdone, 4chan created a petition to have all users of Tumblr be labeled as mentally handicapped land whales, and it got over 15,000 signatures. 40 plus hours of 4chan attacks and Tumblrina responses, all for it to slow down again, die out into a lonely, sad campfire. As an end, there is a small conspiracy about this that another image streaming site was actually the one to provoke Tumblrinas into starting this skirmish with 4chan. And I thought it was one of the funniest things. That is really funny, but I thought like Tumblr already had porn on it. I don't know the history of Tumblr. I do not tumble myself. Um. Neither do I. I don't tumble over 4chan. No, yeah. I do know 4chan is a deep, sordid hole. I've heard of dark rumors. Angry furries, like God, it's angry bronies, angry everything. And if you stick an SS sticker on it and then put it in porn, it's a mixed bag of what 4chan has become. I've seen Tumblr tend to have things that are, you know, artsy or poetic, as well as, mm-hmm. you know, cosplay. Tumblr has been like a huge platform for sensitive people, I would say, as well as uh, many other communities. And they use it as a platform to t- try to help uplift, like like I mentioned earlier, with fun, fun pictures of love and happiness. But you have to, again, look for certain tags that will bring you to where you're going. With that in mind, 4chaners are still going to bomb them just from this issue. They still sit there and mess with them today. For my topic, I chose Western RPGs versus JRPGs. Now, for those who might not know, an RPG is a role-playing game. And while that term is kind of a blanket term, it refers to like a lot of different types of games. Generally, when you say a Western RPG, you're thinking something like Skyrim and JRPGs, Japanese Waller. RPGs. Disgaea, right? That Final Fantasy for sure, Persona. I'll begin mine with just a general list of pros and cons before I give my opinion. Generally, for Western RPGs, you have a character who's kind of a blank slate, a self-insert. You have a lot of heavily customization options. You can change their appearance a lot. There's a lot of features where you're definitely building up your character because this is your way into this world that you're playing. RPGs in general have adapted from like tabletop games and card games. So the idea of character building and character sheets is something that's crossed over into the video game form. Now as opposed to Western RPGs where you have a character with like no name, you choose everything, you build them from the ground up. Mostly in JRPGs, you do have a predetermined character with a pre-made design. And sometimes you can choose their name, but they usually have a name that's supposed to be their correct official name. In terms of how the worlds are, or stories are, Western RPGs tend to be more open world, have a lot of side quests, a lot of optional choices, and JRPGs tend to be a little bit more linear in terms of how you go through it and in terms of story. Aesthetically, a lot of Western RPGs are going to be a lot more realistic looking, more gritty, more darker color palettes, lots of brown it seems like. JRPGs usually, but not always, have an anime aesthetic, have brighter colors, fashionable outfits, flashy weapons, and overall are just meant to be visually interesting. No, don't forget the hair. The hair is always super spiky or super thick curls on top of a head that you 
clearly wouldn't be able to support that kind of hair. And talk about those browns and everything is like Skyrim. Yeah, just lots yeah. of like browns and gray hues. While you have all the anime characters with their unnatural hair colors and eye colors. Western RPGs tend to have a multiplayer kind of option. Not always, but they do feature a multiplayer component usually. Whereas JRPGs heavily focus on a single player narrative story that is very much cinematic in nature. That's also for the MMORPGs too, like for Fantasy Star Online. Mm-hmm. You're a main character. You have lots of like heavy armor and a more grounded sense overall in Western RPGs. Like you can have fantasy, like dragons and stuff, like in Skyrim, or like these maybe outlandish kind of apocalyptic stories. But they're generally a little bit more like realistic and grounded in nature versus like the JRPGs where you have these characters, unassuming little characters, all girly looking with ungodly power. Also generally JRPGs tend to be more console oriented or very mobile friendly and handheld friendly. Like lots of JRPGs were designed to be on like PSP when people cared about it. I still care about it, but... (laughs) Me too. And it's generally because Japanese people themselves, people who want a game, usually don't have a whole lot of time to dedicate always on a console, but they definitely have times like in their commutes in between work on breaks to play on their phones. That's exactly what I was thinking. A lot that's a lot of commute for a lot of people considering the populace where jobs are and stuff like that. They're essentially always on the move. So having something to entertain yourself the majority of your day's transportation is absolutely necessary. It's quite a feat for them to be in crowded ass trains with their phones literally in front of their faces being able to play these games. All that body heat too. Western RPGs tend to lean towards like being PC preferential. Like, they definitely run a lot better, and even though it seems like, in terms of visual fidelity, JRPGs have better graphics, when playing a Western RPG on a PC, it definitely helps improve. Like, that's the kind of state of mind that the developers were in when they were making it. Like, it would run best, function best on a PC. Also, like, in terms of dialogue, JRPGs can have a lot of dialogue where you're reading a lot, but Western RPGs generally give you an option where you can choose some dialogue options, which can then affect the moral alignment of your character and possibly result in different outcomes. I would also say that for music, music isn't really a factor when it comes to Western RPGs, but it is a very notable factor in like JRPGs. They like compose scores specifically for their games and they're applauded to go with battles yeah exactly for that like epic sense of what you're fighting they they get what you're feeling or what you should be feeling in that moment and they're able to use music or properly to echo even what the character is feeling even if you don't you don't feel it yourself you can tell by the music how the character is feeling while even having to look at it and the way that they set their backgrounds and surroundings is always so beautiful and so much work put in that it's just you like watching a fucking movie it's magnificent it's the beautiful piece of art every video game out there is beautiful works of art but jrpgs take it they fucking take it and run For my personal opinion, while I've played both and had quite enjoyable experiences with both, I would definitely say that I prefer JRPGs over Western RPGs. They just appeal to me more. The characters come across as cooler and more elegant. The action is more grandiose. Male characters who are prettier than me can wield incredibly large swords with zero effort. You have these small children who turned out to be powerful deities in disguise. Or like elderly men who are super fucking buff and shit underneath. And super agile. Right, the next thing you know, doing flips and shit like that, killing it. Better than Yoda. (laughs) They can be absurd and delightful, making the world more entertaining to experience and be a part of. I also generally like turn-based mechanics, though I know a lot of people are turned off by them. I also really like how cinematic special moves can be, like summons in Final Fantasy or in specifically a game I like a lot, Golden Sun Dark Dawn. Watching the summon animations were some of my favorite parts because you have these cool entities coming and fucking shit up in like such a crazy fashion. I also enjoy anime anyway, so JRPGs would appeal to me a little bit more than Western ones and maybe that's a factor in why some people don't like them as much because if they can't get around like Japanese sense of humor and just the tropes that I'm accustomed to seeing, they might not be able to get into it. It could be a weird adjustment. 
right or mannerisms that the character does that you notice because you understand the culture or been paying attention enough to it to know what these certain gestures mean like the reason why they when they hand somebody something it's always with both hands as opposed to just one yeah. and you can tell that these mannerisms are different right? and how people count in certain ways or they're how they immediately sit down on the floor instead of a chair you know what i'm saying there's different mannerisms so i absolutely agree and just overall i feel like there's so much more to visually digest when it comes to a jrpg it is more cinematic more linear yes but for me what i'm getting from the story makes up for like a lack or what people would feel is a lack of like freedom in the game you mean like a lot of hand-holding well rather like being on a set path whereas like in skyrim you can go off and just explore an area until you want to get back to the story yeah i got you because I saw that as being one of the things that people have as a major factor in which one they prefer. Some people do prefer the idea that they can go off and fuck around and do nothing or do a bunch of side quests for a long time versus having a very kind of continuous path to the end game. Yeah, the linear path. Yeah. I get that. I always, too, set the voice acting to Japanese when I'm presented with the option. Because I just like how it sounds. But this also brings me to my second mini topic, sub versus dub. Now, I prefer subtitles, like for watching anime. (laughs) Sub versus dub refers to, if you don't know, watching an anime with English subtitles in the original Japanese voice acting or dubbed with English voice acting over the original Japanese animation. Now, I don't have anything against English voice actors. I like Troy Baker, I like Johnny Young Bosch, but Johnny Young Bosch kind of sounds like an anime character anyway. <laughs> Greg Ayers! Greg Ayers, yeah. Vic Manyanyanya? I don't know how to say his last name. <laughs> They're all great. It's just, when I've watched dub versions of anime, unless it's like particular voice actors that I'm super familiar with, it's just like I can't take it seriously. I can't get into it in the same way. And sometimes it is because like the voice acting or maybe the dialogue in English comes across like kind of cheesy, whereas in Japanese, it sounds more serious. Like you can take it more seriously. I co-sign on that 100%. Wait, that should happen to me with Maitama. Have you ever seen that one? I've seen a few episodes of it. I don't think I ever actually finished it. I need to. I watched it originally when it first came out, episode by episode, so in the original Japanese with the English subtitles. When I found out that, a, that an English dub version came out, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Let me check that out. I popped that in while I'm like, you know, doing dishes or like, you know, doing laundry or something like that. Like it's a background thing. And I'd be nowhere I'm at in the story. The voices sounded so wrong for the character. I had to immediately stop and put it in the Japanese or like I had to put on a whole other anime that I could watch, that I could listen to in English because I was doing something and I needed to just have something in the background. And I couldn't do it made some of it because the voices were so ridiculous. It did not match the characters at all. It annoyed me. And no matter how long I tried, I couldn't get through one whole episode. I had to stop and like put on like Overlord, which I listen to in English because I know exactly what's going on, all that stuff. And I could listen to the background shit. But yeah, if you, you have to get the right voice actors for the English dubs. And that shit's one of the things that throw me off for dubs because if the voice doesn't work right, I'm always going to be the motherfucker that sits to watch the sub first. And that's like a major factor for me specifically. It seems like for people who prefer dub just straight out the gate. I don't know how that affects them, but yeah, definitely having the right voices matters a lot. Like my friend is having me watch Jojo Bizarre Adventure and that's a wacky show. (laughs) So so JoJo's reference? I can't even do the subs. I can't do JoJo. I can't do JoJo for the animation. When they did that like JoJo Post thing online, it should be dying, but I can't. I'm barely making it through watching this show. This is a literal thing that happened in like one of the earlier seasons. A guy, okay, one of the JoJo's (laughs) was like fighting a guy who was a rival ally type person. And to like distract him, he threw a bitch at him. (laughs) Like a whole ass person? Yeah. A whole ass female? Yeah, but like the guy he threw her at was cocky, so he like kissed her. But when he kissed her, a whole ass pigeon came out of her mouth. Ew, what the fuck? And it's because the Jojo planted a pigeon in her mouth and planted the pigeon with magic so that way it could like affect the guy when he kissed her. And he's like, I knew you would do that. And it was just such a what the fuck moment. How are you expected to hold a whole ass pigeon in your mouth? I don't know. You ain't a chip, motherfucker. And it was, it's not even like her cheeks were full, nothing. She has no gag reflex. (laughs) 
And like all of this happened in a span of like seconds. So like when the fuck did he put a whole ass bird in her mouth? He's magic. Yo, when does she have time to pull the bird out? When does she have time to hold the cheek tight like that to pretend this shit isn't like that? And she was a random bitch. She didn't even have any relevance. Of course she is. How did you know that this bitch had that kind of champion goggle goggle 3000 in her throat? There's so many questions. But anyway, <laughs> I tried listening to like an episode in dub because I was like half distracted and I kind of wanted to like keep up with whatever the fucking plot is while busy. And like it was so bad because you had someone, you, the voice actor for the guy playing Jojo was doing this like weird fake British accent. Mm. It was just so weird. It was just so weird. All the voices sounded really fucking weird. I couldn't do it. It was so bad. <laughs> The but, shading on the faces of oh, yeah. the JoJo characters are so wrong. It looks like they tried to chisel Greek statues but didn't sand out the cheeks to make them round. And then it looks like they rained acid out their eyes and it like structured their face like that. I just I can't. JoJo's too much to ask of me. Now there are some dubs that I definitely don't mind. Well, the main one for me is always going to be Orin Hose Club. I've never listened to the Japanese voice recordings of that. I initially started watching it with the English dub. I feel like I grew too attached to that voice cast to then try to change and listen to it differently. Like those vo are the voices of those characters for me. I absolutely understand that I feel that way about Excel Saga. I like the Japanese version, but the American voice actress is so funny and her speed matches how fast the character is supposed to go. So she keeps up and the XL is a fucking speed racing talker. And just the hilarity in those episodes, not having XL be that woman does not compute my brain for me. Another like dub thing that I think is definitely tolerable and if not anything, it's really fucking funny. So you should like listen to it once. Ghost Stories. Oh yes, I co-signed that, absolutely. Everybody who's listening, check out Ghost Stories. That shit is hilarious. The dub is so fucking funny. <laughs> It like sounds like an abridged version, but that's the official um, English dub. You know the story behind it, right? Not entirely, no. All right, so what happened was it was a serious ghost story anime. Like it was those kids, the serious situations, you know, all that shit. Their mother, her mother did leave her that book, all that jazz. And it was meant to be serious. It just didn't take off at all. It moved from like company to company to company. Nobody did anything with it. So I think Toei was the one who caught it. I honestly don't know. And they just said, fuck it. Grab some American voice actors, let them ad-lib on a lot of parts and see how that goes. They gave him a bare minimum script and just said, ad-lib, be funny, do what you can. And that's literally what they came up with. It is just funny. It has a bunch of Kevin Bacon jokes in it. I don't even know why. It's the best Greg Anderson too. Oh, it's, it's so good, people. You all need to watch that shit. My favorite oh. part is the younger brother, who every time on he's on screen, he doesn't say words. He just goes, <laughs> in every scene. No, I love the religious kid. She just comes in with the randomest shit. I love her too. She's her and is it Kichiro the boy? I don't. The show's so Go funny. See, yeah. yeah, watch it. I would say that one, colorful, which is literally just upskirt jokes and college boys trying to get ass. That's all it is. I would suggest colorful. Golden Boy is another fucking hilarious one. Dubbed or subbed, they're both fucking great and hilarious. Is that the one that has a really fucking funny pool animation where he's like well, swimming? Yes, and he, he, he was talking all kinds of shit that he's about to swim and then he, he jumps in there and he's like dying in the water yeah. trying to make it. He's, and the water's only like waist deep, so part way, like he's almost done. He stops, stands up, breathes, and then hops back in the water like somebody drowning and tries to make it to the other side. Stands up and gives you that, so what do you think? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. All I saw was that clip and that shit had me laughing so hard. Golden Boy is hilarious. And it's not just about him trying to get a heart on or whatever, but he's a really fucking smart guy and he helps the people he interacts with. So it's just fuck situations that his horny ass gets him into. And he's just so naive but mad smart. It's hilarious. I'd also say for like dubs that seem to be acceptable, it seems like a lot of the like animes that got really popular in the US tend to have pretty decent dubs. But then again, it could be a thing of hearing them and being familiar with them that it makes it more acceptable. But stuff like Bleach, Naruto, Cowboy Bebop, Inuyasha, I'd say DBZ because like I've heard the Japanese voice for Goku and it's like such a drastic disconnect that <laughs> it's weird for me. <laughs> 
I'm not a PD fan, so I don't have a stake in that one. I'm not that much either, but like that's one of the shows that used to come on in a more accessible way when you weren't getting it off the internet, you know? Right. But yeah, those ones seem to sound pretty okay in terms of English dub. Then again, it could be because they were shown over here freely with the dubs there. Now, for some pros and cons. I know for people who prefer dubs, they say like subtitles can be distracting, it can be hard to focus on both, which I would say doesn't seem to be that big of a problem for me personally. The only time it ever comes up is when I'm thinking about it too much and then all of a sudden I can't read and look at the screen at the same time. Now, I was sitting there trying to have a conversation with a friend of mine. I was talking to him and his husband. His husband has no problem with subs, but he doesn't like dubs because he has to read it and then look at the screen. But I sit there and tell you that animes always give you lasting images. It's not like there's a ton of shit going on in the anime scene. It's the character moving. So you see what's there. It only takes but a second to lower your eyes, not even a full second. You don't have to like turn your head to it. And most times it's only a sentence or two long because their pronunciations for words will get longer than ours. So I don't understand what the problem is. I literally showed my daughter how to read, having her watch anime subtitles. And I would pause it so she could catch up to the reading to the point where she could watch a sub without a problem. I mean, there are grown deaf people who do it, clearly. I feel like I personally don't, at least I don't actively think about reading it when I'm watching it. It's like, I just sort of do it. Because it's right there. It's within your purview. You can still see what else is on the screen. They also say that they just prefer having dub enthusiasts, prefer just hearing something in the language that they themselves speak, which I can kind of get. Specifically, what I would say for something that can be useful about dubs is like you mentioned earlier, if you're trying to get up and maybe actively do things while also having something on in the background and you don't necessarily want to miss out on what's happening, hearing it and being able to understand it without looking at the screen is a plus, but I still- I still prefer subs overall because sometimes in so here are a few cons for dubs there's lots of lost translation yes and that can definitely affect how you're meant to ingest the media this is one anime uh in it's goku secret service now and it, it's a, it's approximately the same the the subtitles to what the translation happens the american dub to the translation of the sub- subtitles at least sometimes i need them both if i can't hear what's going on and there's this one scene at the at near the end of the anime, the second to last episode, where the two characters actually come in to kiss. And in the Japanese translation, it isn't as romantic as the American dub is. And it changes that moment, just that one sentence or phrase. The scene where Miketsukami is coming in to kiss his charge, and he, he, I forgot what he says in the Japanese version, but how I've waited, he whispers it right before he kisses her and it changes the moment for you. It brings a different intensity there. He says something else in the, in the, in the sub, but when he says in English, oh, how I've waited, in the tone that he does in the whisper-like way, it absolutely increases the moment for anybody watching and it does for me. But that's the reason why you watch animes to feel something. You watch these things to feel something. And in that moment, I feel in the sub, I don't. In the dub, it changes it up in a way that just makes that moment more potent in its romance than the you know again the subtitles did i was gonna say too like yeah a lot can be lost depending on like how they translate it how they depict the character because sometimes like the specific kind of japanese that a character uses whether it's super formal super casual or like things like certain particles that they use to end a sentence with can say a lot about their character's mood and personality like i can't explain a lot of japanese right now but generally ending a sentence with like yo is saying it enthusiastically so characters who end their sentences with that a lot are generally very upbeat characters and if the translator doesn't understand that there's no real good way to easily carry that over into a dub to pay attention to all those little things that you would be able to see in how the japanese voice actors depict it it'd be the enthusiasm at the end of the inflection as well yeah it'll carry over to a translated to, to subtitles and it's hard for a voice actor to know that's what's going on if they don't say watch the media in the original japanese to begin with yeah because again like i said characters that use super formal japanese if they're just literally translating it to its literal meaning rather than understanding that they're speaking in a very formal way rather than speaking in a casual way it can take what's supposed to be a kind of like uptight 
very preppy character and make them sound more normal when they're meant to be this way. And also, I have seen and people have mentioned how like how censorship can occur in dubs at times. Like they'll cut out entire lines of dialogue that they don't feel is relevant to the Western audience or whatever audience that they're dubbing it for. They'll even clip the scene for it because of that. Yeah, like if there's like a Japanese cultural reference that obviously wouldn't carry over so they'll just completely cut it. So there's an argument to be made for people who like subs better that even with subtitles on, you're still getting the original uncut, unedited Japanese thing and that's its pure form. That's the way it's meant to be viewed. One of the censorship things that you could probably speak more on than I could I do remember hearing about this, is that in the dubbed version of Sailor Moon, there's this female couple who, they, yeah. do you want to talk about it? Yeah, they're a lesbian couple, it's Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune, but in the anime, they're cousins. I believe they put them out as cousins. But in the anime, you could clearly see that there's an affection between them by the way they stand next to each other, the body languages that's written into the anime itself. But they did a lot of editing for that stuff. There's supposed to be more panty shots. The skirts were meant to be a little bit shorter. Like, they, they take off cleavage for some characters. Like, they did a lot for, for censorship for Sailor Moon. But yeah, no, they took the lesbian couple and instead of having them have a solid, happy, you know, healthy relationship on screen, they were meant to be as cousins and portrayed as like that in the American version. You had to literally search for the Japanese version or like purchase it outside of the United States and have, you know, do what the customs purchases and shit like that to get what fucking happened to look online for it. And at the time, online wasn't a huge, huge thing that many people had access to. I certainly did. Not until I saw the purchasing shit online. Which is kind of like a funny idea that they were uncomfortable with the idea of lesbians being depicted, but they're okay with having the body language of this like romantic relationship stay, but make them cousins instead. So now you have this kind of probably uncomfortably close cousin relationship. Dude, not to mention, they don't even, the, the American versions don't even recognize, like, the, the outer, not, not the outer Sailor Scouts, but, like, the Sailor Galactic ones, because they're essentially, like, the leader is a female that transforms into a man when it's normal a person and tries to sit there and court Sailor Moon herself while her man tuxedo masks over in America learning shit. So they cut that out entirely? So, yeah, yeah so they don't play that entire season at all. You don't get access to that season. It was never played. It was not, they were like, no, anything past a certain Sailor Moon, you never have access to on the American side. Unless you went on the internet and searched for it and got it yourself. Because if she was there the entire season. It's the, yeah, the galaxy was, they were fighting Galaxia or some shit like that. I have them all. The Super R, Super S, the movies, except for the new Crystal ones. I haven't done those. You never saw that in the, on the Americas. You got replayed season one, season two, and Sailor R. That's it. So it must be like kind of crazy. There's six seasons of fucking Sailor Moon out there at the minimum. You lucky if you got three. So they really cut half of what was there, which is kind of a crazy notion. You're missing half a show. Oh yeah. <laughs> they were trying to censor to the point where they made to try to make it live action with a whole bunch of like valley girls trying to make it Power Rangery. Mm. And they were gonna be surfing on surfboards attached to sails what? sailing out to the universe. Yes. They they were on surfboards that had the, the sails on them, you know those wind surfer things? They're trying to quite That's literally the make them their namesake. I was gonna say they're literally sailors. Yeah, they were going to be Wind Sailor, Sailor Scouts, still, and they were live-action females in the outfits, but also drawn. Remember uh, the, the old-school uh, Barbie cartoons? You wouldn't. <laughs> Stayed like, I remember. like back in the day type. It's similar to like the My Little Pony type drawings. Yeah. You know that old kind of cartoon? Uh, I know style? the old My Little Pony. Yeah, so similar to that, but make it women, like the characters, so kind of like Disney-like, but a little more cheruby. And those were going to be the cartoon version of the Sailor Scouts with a live-action Power Ranger tie-in. So they were going to be actual live-action girls that would transform, but when they transformed, it would turn into the cartoon version of the Sailor Scouts. And those girls would surf on surfboards with the, the sails to the, in perpetuity to their colors, of course, and sail out into the fucking universe. They only ever made half of a pilot episode, and if somebody recording, that's the only that we have that a pilot ever existed for that type of Sailor Moon. I was gonna it's say, terrible. that it's sounds terrible. like it was by design. They were trying to hop on the Power Ranger bandwagon, but got into it. whoever they showed it to did not like it whatsoever. I was gonna say, half a pilot episode, did the rest just catch on fire, like mid-production? Oh, 
the tape just ends because that's all anybody has is a found footage looking version of fucking Sailor Moon. It's so funny. And everything was censored as much as they could. They took butt cracks away from Yukio. Yeah, the dolphin did. <laughs> because there was no butt crack, it means there was no butthole. The only thing that seems to not get translated when you are watching subs is like things in the background. They don't always translate that. If you're watching maybe not the best scanned subbed version of an anime, they can't show you the subtitles for both at once or like they don't do it quickly enough. Or the like pictures of people in the background that have like signs and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you can't tell what it's at. Or like sometimes, honestly, and I think these ones should definitely be subbed, is a shot of someone's phone and they got a text. They don't always translate it. It's crucial to the plot line. Like you flyer that there's something they're looking at that's crucial information. How the fuck are we supposed to know it's crucial information if you don't translate that shit? Yeah, that's like one of the biggest flaws I'd say happens with like subs. I don't know how you overlook something like that, but... Yeah, they do it into live action movies too when you're watching foreign films. Yeah. Yeah, that too. In subs, if there's like a double entendre type of thing, that goes over your head. Because <laughs> it's kind of hard to write out. Because it would be culturally relevant to them. Yeah. So I covered books versus film in terms of adaptations. Hollywood always likes to look for interesting stories and likes to tell said stories, albeit whether they come with explosions, chaos, love, tragedy, or laughs. When they look to books, it's obviously for a new story to tell and more money to print. Producers draw on the popularity of books to distinctly use for marketing advantages because now they have a built-in fan base. Fans of the books getting adapted genuinely get excited when they learn that their favorite story or stories are about to be adapted as feature films. They start doing fun things like wondering who's going to get cast as who, and many start fan casting themselves, who they think would be perfect in which roles. They wonder just how true to the book the film will be, and what's hit or miss is that filmmakers can take certain creative liberties and add certain touches that could add a sense of freshness to the material. That doesn't always work for some, but it does in other cases. Films tend to leave a lot of details out that books provide, obviously, as we know a hundred plus page book can be told in a 90 minute to two hour film. But some do it well, they manage it, and others definitely make it feel rushed and miss conveying the story entirely. Films tend to leave a lot of details out that books provide. We know that loose scripts, Unmatched characters, odd storytelling methods aren't accepted by book lovers and you end up leaving them feel like you should have left their stories alone and studios wishing they didn't spend the money on making them. Personally, I appreciate movie adaptations of books because of the book comparison obviously is not going to be fair. They are, you know, actually two different mediums and of different advantages and qualifications for what makes each one good and stands on their own merits. With books, the readers become immersed in the story. They become a part of it. We can observe the situations, have insight into character thoughts, feelings, and nuances. They become three-dimensional. They become real for us. Books also give more detail. They flesh out each character. As we witness them develop, we learn who they are, we see who they become, what choices they make, and you imagine what these characters look like. You see the places that they're in, and people and areas that they interact, as you picture it that you've built it up in your imagination. You can interpret the plot or story to your liking. Books improve your vocabulary, spelling, and punctuation, whether you notice it or not. With movies, yes, you can actually see the elements of the books previously confined to said imagination, with the occurrences and climax of the story being accompanied by background music, the expressions on actors' faces as examples. It gives your imagination a sense of reality. Films can reach a wider audience and can get those who enjoyed them to actually go buy or take out the books at their local library, bringing more people to love what you love. Case in point, The Silence of the Lambs told the story of Clarice Starling as she was hunting the serial killer Buffalo Bill in which she aligned with the help of Hannibal Lecter, who was a noted cannibal and brilliant mind. The film rightfully caught criticism for its portrayal of transgender, seeing as Buffalo Bill was a crossdresser and seemingly wanted to become female. So they caught a lot of flack for making people think that this is how transgender people might act. And this movie came out in the early 90s, so you know that this came out during the height of when people were misinterpreting how AIDS and HIV was catchable. Some people, Mm -hmm. remember, used to think that you can catch it from a toilet seat. 
In the book, however, it handles transgender identity more feasibly tackled than the film was and had more detail. Also, another notable change was that the mythos of Hannibal Lecter was grounded more in in the film than it was in the book. In the book, if you didn't know, Hannibal Lecter had red eyes and six fingers on one hand. Really? Yeah. So obviously they weren't going to do that for the film. I was going to say he has to look evil. Yeah, because a lot of the stuff that you read in the book is fantastical about Hannibal specifically. So when the movie was being made, you kind of wondered if you read the books, how he was going to be portrayed. Because remember, his book was a series. In The Shining, Stephen King gave depth to Jack and Danny Torrance. The story is fleshed out more, and it's developed as, you know, he wrote a 500-page book. But as is a penchant of his, he goes into painstaking detail of almost everything, including some characters that are side characters, non-important characters. So it can be tedious and boring to get through, which is why I've only read maybe a handful of his books. And I'd have to have been really, really curious to want to read it in the first place, knowing how he tells his stories. He famously hated Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of his book because he believed that Kubrick had simplified it and also making it more visually complex than emotionally so. And the ending differs wildly from the book as in the movie, he freezes to death. But yet in the book, as he's chasing after Danny, he dies in an explosion in the boiler room when the Overlook crashes down on him, which seems to be the more apt way to go. Just freezing to death is almost like just trying to outlast your pursuer a little boy would likely freeze to death more than an adult man, you know what I mean? Right, and the caretaker being killed in another Yeah, the caretaker survived in the book. He helped Danny and his mom escape, even though the Overlook was trying to retake him over. He was fighting that off in order to save them. It wasn't a Stephen King movie, was it the one that, um, supposed to be a sequel to the, to The Shining? The Doctor Sleep, that was Stephen King. Doctor Sleep. So yeah, the Doctor Sleep movie, that was supposed to be, you know, like him falling through, but actually picks up from him being a, the caretaker being alive and helping Danny develop his powers for The Shining and shit like that. Mm-hmm. But they had to change it for the movie for him to be like a ghost kind of helping him out. And having overcome such a traumatic event that his childhood was. Okay. Successful films. An element that was left out was you knew that there were supposed to be five wizards in Middle Earth during this time. It was supposed to be Gandalf, Saruman, Radagast, my favorite, Alatar, and Palando. Alatar and Palando are the blue wizards to go with the gray, white, and brown aforementioned wizards, respectively. Now, in the books, these characters traveled to Middle-earth accompanying Saruman to aid some men and subdue others, mainly the Southerns and the Easterlings who had worshipped Sauron. They stayed behind as Saruman left. Not much is known of their exploits after this, and if you remember in the Hobbit film, Bilbo had asked Gandalf how many wizards are there, and Gandalf had mentioned how many wizards there were, but he said that two of them whose names he have quite forgotten. That one was supposed to be a reference to the fact that the filmmakers did not have the rights to use the names of the Blue Wizards, which is why he quote-unquote conveniently forgot. Really? I did not know that. How do they not have... Wait, they had rights to every other character? No, 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 no. No, what it is is that when you're optioning a book or property for adaptation to film or TV, you get licensed for only whatever that property was. Now, the Blue Wizards specifically were from uh, Tolkien's Unfinished Tales, which they did not option. So that's why they didn't have the rights to those wizards. Sneaky, sneaky. And besides, honestly, it really doesn't matter anyway, seeing as the exploits of the Blue Wizards weren't known after they came to Middle-earth and after they separated from Saruman. So it was pointless to try to just pay for the rights to use two names of characters you had no intention of casting, you know? Can I just say something random? Yeah. It's always communication that's the problem with every fucking story. Just wanted to say that. Communication is always key. Your motherfuckers always ignore it in every story. Communication is always a fucking problem. Well, that adds to events having to unfold the way they need to in the narrative. And I get that. Story progression. We have no story without this. But still, like, I feel like so many problems would be solved with proper communication. It's a story. Yeah, communication. Short books, short movies don't make money. Right. Logical people. And 
sense. Nobody enough. reads or watch reads books or watches movies for commonsensical people. Because I was gonna say horror movies would not be as popular. <laughs> you you wouldn't have nearly the blood count, body count. Right? That Geico commercial where they're like, "Why don't we run into that shed full of chainsaws?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My last verses is Dumbledore versus Gandalf. This is an epic throwdown. Obviously, a lot of people in their respective fan bases have clearly debated this, especially when they were adapted for film. So we're not going to tread a lot of new ground. However, I am going to briefly summarize the characters themselves and probably throw in a few facts that maybe people who didn't happen to read the books didn't know. Now, Dumbledore was a book-smart and experience-smart wizard. When he was young, he was an esteemed academic as he mastered the magical principles in his first year. During his Newt's exams, his professor at the time said that, quote-unquote, he did things with a wand I'd never seen before. That sounds sexual. It's absolutely sexual. Well, okay, I'm going to go off of that innuendo with... There was a meme that was made maybe a few years back where they took the soundbite from Order of the Phoenix... And when he was taken off as headmaster, he told Fudge, Umbridge, and a couple of the ministry reps who were there to detain him. He said, perhaps you were under or laboring under the delusion that I was going to, what was the phrase? Come quietly? And people kept focusing on the come quietly part. <laughs> you know there was a thing online where he was like double daddy? Yeah. Okay. Show that me what that wand so do. <laughs> terrible. Show me how unforgivable you can be. <laughs> He was a mortal who achieved mastery of magic. I repeat, he was a mortal. Right. Now, lineage-wise, Dumbledore was not a pureblood. He was a half-blood. He was an excellent duelist, as his duel with Grindelwald is legendary in the wizarding world. He became the wielder of the Elder Wand, which was the most powerful wand in existence. He, at one time or another, owned every single one of the Deathly Hallows. And he did, right? Yes, and the story is that he that possesses the Deathly Hallows can become the master of death. It's not completely clear off the top of my head whether he owned all of them at the same time, but he definitely owned each one at different points. He, he was the one who gave the cloak to Harry, wasn't he? Yes, but the cloak of invisibility passed through numerous hands before it got to James Potter, and he used it when he was acting up at Hogwarts with his friends when they'd travel off to the Shrieking Shack. And I solemnly swear I am up to no good. And, oh, shit, huh? Yeah, he was. <laughs> and when they used to take trips into Hogsmeade. Now, Dumbledore had asked James Potter if he could study the cloak, which James allowed him to do. And during that time, when James Potter ended up being murdered by Voldemort, it stayed in Dumbledore's possession. It would take 10 years before Dumbledore handed the cloak to Harry as a Christmas present and told him to use it wisely. That's where the hormones start to rage it. You find a bunch of bitches complaining at school that their asses are getting pinched and they don't know where it's coming from. It's Harry. It's always been Harry. It's terrible. <laughs> he retrieved the gaunt ring as he was hunting horcruxes that Voldemort had made. And upon inspection of it, realized that it was the resurrection stone that was sat in its center. What the fuck? I, I thought Nicholas Fromel had this shit. That's a philosopher's stone. The resurrection stone is different. Wait, wait, wait. Uh. Was, no, you're right. What, the resurrection stone is the one that he saw in the... With the he was hidden wait, inside of the snitch. Am I thinking the philosopher's stone too? I'm thinking of that. Yeah, because I was thinking in the mirror he saw his parents because he wanted to bring them back. That's a different magical artifact altogether. Yeah, that's why I was like, he made it into a ring. That shit is big as fuck. <laughs> yeah, no. To be clear, the philosopher's stone is an elemental stone in which you can will things into existence in terms of creating. The mirror that Harry looked at in his first year that was hidden was the mirror of Eroset. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that shows you your greatest desires. The resurrection stone can bring a deceased loved one back to life if only for a moment. I remember that part now because when he got the snitch open, it looked like a small black diamond and it was sitting inside of the snitch the whole time. It was set in there by Dumbledore before his death 
to give to Harry, bequeathing it to him in his will. And yeah. the only words on it was, I opened at the close for him to understand how to reveal it so that anybody else who would have possession of the snitch, such as the Minister of Magic at the time, couldn't open it by accident. What did he actually do with the Philosopher's Stone? The Philosopher's Stone was being sought after by Voldemort in order to rebuild his body. Ah. What they did with it after was just return it to Flamel for him to do whatever he was going to do with it. They didn't specify. Hmm. Well, Dumbledore mentioned to Harry that they were going to handle life affairs and shit. They weren't going to feed off of the, the Philosopher's Stone and make their elixir of life or whatever for however long they were going to do it. They only wanted to cover what was left of their life, but they wanted to live. And they were going to return it back to Dumbledore for him to do lock it up or some shit. That last time it was big, because I remember. Once he realized it was the Resurrection Stone, it was a little late because he had already put it on and he activated the curse that was attached to it because he had forgotten in that moment that it was a Horcrux. He had put it on only because the Resurrection Stone grants the wearer or the holder to see a deceased loved one again. And he was thinking of his sister, Ariana. He also started the Order of the Phoenix during Voldemort's first rise to power in the First Wizarding War. The group had notable members of the day, the Peveril brothers, who were exceptionally powerful wizards, and the brothers to Molly Weasley. You had Remus Lupin, you had Nymphadora Tonks, Sirius Black, Mad-Eye Moody, and Neville's parents among its ranks, along with the Potters, of course. This group would be instrumental in fighting Voldemort and his allies during the First and Second Wizarding Wars. His notable accolades, personally, is he He's the only wizard that Voldemort ever feared. He's the veteran of three wizarding wars, if you count the global wizarding war that he had against Grindelwald. He was the headmaster of Hogwarts. He was the supreme mugwump of the International Confederation of Wizards and the chief warlock of the Wizard Gamut. Gandalf, by comparison, originally known as Olorin, was created at the beginning to help shape Middle-earth. He was one of the many Ainur, which are spirits, created by Iluvatar, who is the father of all. He was one of the five Istar, which are wizards, sent to Middle-earth by the Valar, the high rulers, to combat Sauron and his followers. He is also a Maiar, a primordial spirit, meaning he's nearly ageless. As Gandalf the Grey, he was wise, noble, kind to all classes of Middle-earth, whether they be men, dwarves or elves and hobbits. I was going to say, don't forget the hobbits. He loved him some hobbits. He loved their weed. <laughs> he also loved how much one little person accomplished so much. That's what he liked about him. Well, here's the thing. The thing was is that before he was sent, he didn't want to go. He was afraid. And he was told, that's the very reason why I'm sending you is because you are afraid. And this will help you overcome that because you'll do the right thing when the time comes. Can I just say real quick, Mm -hmm. being like one or two steps removed from a fucking god is dope as fuck. Well, a lot of the people who watched the films and didn't try reading the books would be unaware of Gandalf. So I feel like a lot of, uh, in terms of what, how powerful he actually is, so in the debate of Dumbledore versus Gandalf, without having read the books, probably automatically pick Dumbledore. Right. Because people have to remember Dumbledore wields magic, but he's mortal. When he died, right. he was 114. Mm. So compared to Gandalf, he's a kid. Mm. So we're talking about mortal versus immortal, and we're, talk- we're talking about someone who mastered the magic arts. And to Dumbledore's credit, not that it changes the scales any, he was also a master of linguistic magic, so he could conjure spells without the use of his wand. That's the extent of Dumbledore's skills. Whereas with Gandalf, seeing as he's had a long history and he's had built these strong, long-lasting bonds with the classes of Middle-earth, he had honorable titles like the Grey Pilgrim and Mithrandir. These names were bestowed based on tales of his deeds. And he was given Narya, which is the Ring of Fire, by the elven lord Surdin, who was in possession of one of the three rings made for elves that were tied to the One Ring to help aid in his efforts against Sauron. He learned from high beings he encountered, high elves, scrolls, books, artifacts, so he was very learned. He was supported by kings and high elves also in endeavors. He rallied the peoples of Middle-earth against Sauron and got into battles physically. He threw down when he had to. He was not afraid to get physical. He was into the muck. He was in it to win it, motherfucker. He faced off against both Sauron and Saruman. 
to Dumbledore's credit, he faced off against Grindelwald and Voldemort. Right, but none of them are a fucking Balrog. <laughs> I like to see one of those motherfuckers go up a Balrog. The only person who might live through it would be none of those motherfuckers. And maybe uh, the dude from Magical Creatures or whatever it is. He'd have some sort of weird fucking, like, chew toy or something that the, <laughs> that the Balrog would like. He sacrificed himself at Moria against the Balrog to save the Fellowship. He returned from death, something that Dumbledore did not do. Facts. And he be- just died like a bitch. <laughs> And he came back more powerful. He said, I died and leveled up. He said, updating systems. <laughs> so him being an elemental being was not allowed to die until he achieved his goal. And when he came back, that's when he wielded just a little bit more power visually that we saw in the films. I feel like the films underplayed it. Though I will sit there and say that a king coming back on a ship full of ghosts that are ready to kick ass is dope I was just thinking about that scene the other day and how they literally wash over them. <laughs> like a tidal wave of ghosts. If I was in Aragorn's position, I would have sat there and said, look, I will set you free and consider your oaths fulfilled if you help us defeat all of Sauron's armies. Not just win one battle on the field. Right. Oh, Could have saved so much more lives if you just had worded it better, you know? I'm pretty sure the ghost could have ran up the fucking uh, volcano and snatched up my boy Samwise and th- that wimp. Frodo <laughs> <laughs> and strolled their asses off on fucking ghostly horses down the fucking lava. That movie would have ended quicker. <laughs> By at least 45 minutes. Now we're going to transition to Am I the Asshole? Alright. Your options are sister, brother-in-law, mother-in-law, or brother. Mother-in-law. Am I the asshole for telling my mother-in-law that she will never see my child? (laughs) My girlfriend, Ella, and I have been together for almost four years now and we're expecting our first child later this year. She's five months pregnant. From the stories I've heard and from my own experiences with her, her mother seems to be an extremely disrespectful person. Because of her attitude, Ella has significantly cut contact with most of her family. She also didn't really tell them we were pregnant. They found out through Ella's cousin. Upon hearing about Ella's pregnancy, Ella's mom has been pestering us about inviting us to dinner to congratulate and celebrate our growing family. It's a nice gesture, but I was hesitant to accept because of the way that she and the rest of Ella's family actually act. After almost a month of ignoring the invitation, Ella convinced me to take her up on it. The dinner was held at this very expensive, very fancy, fine dining restaurant. At first, to my shock, the dinner was going well. Ella's mom apologized for his past behavior and stated that she wanted to be a good grandmother moving forward. Her sister also offered support in the form of babysitting, old baby clothes, etc. The conversation was friendly. I was very surprised to not hear anything insulting from her mom directed at Ella. When Ella stepped out to use the washroom, Ella's sister made a comment about her supposed gain weight and offered me diet plans and an exercise regimen to prevent her from getting too chunky. Her mom also pitched in about Ella's greedy eating habits, just to be clear my girlfriend isn't big she's very tall and lanky and even if she was the biggest woman in the universe their comments would still be unacceptable she's pregnant right like uh, (laughs) also asked me to not tell ella about our conversation because she's apparently too sensitive at this point i wanted to leave once ella came back i announced that i wanted to leave the dinner early her family was surprised and asked me why i responded that i didn't see them fit to see my child and wouldn't want to see them ever again i was probably very impolite but in the moment i didn't care her mom was very upset almost yelling in the restaurant about how i couldn't leave without paying their bill as i was the man at the table and how i couldn't make husband demands as a boyfriend i can't forbid the grandmother from seeing her child because i'm not a true family again i didn't care and i left with ella i later found out that ella's mom's car declined and they were forced to phone a friend to bring some money very embarrassed ella thinks that it could have been less harsh because now her sister's spreading rumors about her to her family am i the asshole I didn't know you ain't the asshole. In fact, those bitches invited him. That's what I was going to say. That last restaurant didn't say, hey, you're fucking paying. No, if somebody invites you out, they're paying. Unless they discuss, you all are going Dutch. Then that's fucking something we can talk to. But you don't tell me you're inviting me out to lunch. And then tell me I'm fucking paying, number one. Number two, why the fuck are you making any type of fucking comments about somebody else's fucking body? Let alone your own child who's pregnant with your grandbaby. That's so dumb. Because as soon as they, you were saying that they expected him to play, I was thinking, like, you invited me out. What, what are you Yo, talking about? For a loop there, when they said he was supposed to pay the bill, I said, like, what? <laughs> I got lost in my throat there for a second. <laughs> what the fuck? I feel like he wasn't rude enough. <laughs> oh, good lord. The fact that you say it may have been impolite, oh. Yo. They're lucky it was just may have been, so he Yo, thought. Oh, that means it was barely there. 
Right. Don't tell her that we're talking shit. You're all way too racist for situations like that. People can't take me nowhere. <laughs> you body shaming your own kid and she pregnant. She's right, pregnant. she's pregnant. The fuck? Not to mention, like, she needs to eat more because she's providing nutrients for a whole nother life forming in her. So talking about her being greedy. Which you would think that all the family members should be aware of, seeing as that's how they came into existence. Right. Why are they calling her greedy for wanting to eat more food, saying she has greedy eating habits, but they're not even the ones fucking paying for it? They weren't expecting to pay for it. (laughs) In this corner of the universe, they may have found, and they as in Marvel Studios, may have found a, a way to have Thor and company be able to travel the Bifrost without Heimdall, who was lost in Avengers Infinity War. I hurt my feelings. Apparently, Stormbreaker has the ability to channel the Bifrost from literally anywhere. And it's assumed that this is what the case is due to a Lego set that was released recently that depicts Thor standing at the uh, with Stormbreaker at the end of the ship's neck where he's navigating. How often do toys spoil things? Often. <laughs> All you have to wait is like less than a month the trailer to fuck it up for you anyway. Or they could, you know, famously misdirect you like that Wakandan charge that looked like it happened in the middle of a forest instead of the wide rolling hills it was in the actual movie. Right. And you saw the Hulk in full form, not Banner in a Hulkbuster suit. Yep. Aaron Pierre, who has been in quite a few projects and has been on Disney's radar, has cast him in an undisclosed role as he joins Blade. It's heavily rumored that he may be their version of Hannibal King, who was previously played by Ryan Reynolds in Blade Trinity. Oh. Uh, yes. Hey, he has one of my favorite curse words in there. Four-something thundercunt. <laughs> I like Trinity, regardless of what other people like, because it wasn't liked, right? It wasn't critically acclaimed or anything like that. I still like. I like all the movies. Uh, it was the the weakest of the three, critically. I still liked it. Ryan Reynolds did it for me. That and and Hunter Hearst Humbly being a douche. The little fucking Pomeranian. Yes, that too. Now, as I said before, Disney is already high on the actor as they have tapped him to be the voice of the young Mufasa in the Lion King prequel that is yet to go into production. There was a recent Did You Know Gaming video that was released that gave a little bit more insight into the testing of the Virtual Boy headset that was Nintendo's failed attempt at an accessory of sorts. Now, former Nintendo of America associate producer had said that there was extreme testing processes that they went through for people testing the Virtual Boy. And he likened it to a clockwork orange. (laughs) So... He said that when they were testing people out for the Virtual Boy, they had to have them go through this. If you remember the movie, the scene where the person's pinned down in the chair and they've got their eyelids open, that was kind of what Virtual Boy testing was like. They would dilate the pupils. They would have volunteers sit with their heads in this vice-type thing. They would shine lights in those pupils. They would have these plastic rods, which they would have them just barely touching your eyes. And they would say, okay, no matter what, don't blink for a minute. (laughs) I hate when they do those kind of eye testing, except in those machines they blow a puff of air in your eye. But that thing that goes so close to your eye, it almost touches it. It makes me feel like I like I have to hold my neck so solidly still, then I'll poke the shit out of it. But yeah. I strangely, psychotically have urges to slam forward to see what the fuck would feel like pushing it in my eye. I'm a fucking weirdo. They put them under just the most bizarre test just to make sure that the thing would be safe to use. They would blow air into the eyes. They would have them play a Virtual Boy test kit for about 10-15 minutes and then have a rest. Then they dilate the eyes again. Two or three rounds of that. Just bizarre inhumane torture tests that made sure this thing wouldn't kill, blind, or whatever. Force dilating their eyes and then like all that light coming in when that's yeah. that gotta be rough. But yeah, it was interesting. Initially, while Nintendo's methods do sound rather extreme, it was perhaps right for being cautious with the Virtual Boy. The system is famous for causing headaches after prolonged use. And when Reflection Technology, who was the company that was behind the visual tech that made that system possible, had met with Sega before they even sold the idea to Nintendo. To Sega, their then president and thought there was huge issues. He said the huge issue for them was kids got sick, threw up, or fell over when using that. So they couldn't take a chance on it and they passed on it before Nintendo had okayed doing it. Sega! Now, the latest TV spot for Morbius, The Living Vampire, with Jared Leto. 
they released the final trailer, and you see a little bit more of Matt Smith, who at the time was playing an unknown character, but has since been in the previous trailer playing a character named Milo. Now, in the trailer, though, it seemed like he suffers from the same afflictions as Morbius for his transformation. And if that is the case, then a character he's most likely playing would be Loxious Crown, who was someone who suffered from those transformations before making the turn himself, and he became the alter ego Hunger. But seeing as his character name is Milo, and they share some similarities, it's possible he could be a different character also. He could be Emil Nikos, who was a childhood friend of Morbius, who subsequently became his first victim when Morbius first transformed. So he could be a combination seeing as Marvel and Sony like to make combination characters for movies that they've done. So you just have to wait and see. Right. And you don't put someone like Matt Smith, a notable British name, into something without making him important to the plot. Yeah, it's like you would want to cast him for, you know, a significant role long term. Right. Like when superstars show up on like, what is it, SVU? You know they're the bad guy. You just put the bad say. guy. I was going to say, right. as soon as you see a recognizable face, you're like, oh, shit's going down. Yeah, like, oh, I wonder how bad he's going to be. <laughs> that wraps up for this week's episode. Tune in next time. As we discuss more topics, this is the final episode of Season 1. We'll see you in a few months. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. If you like the show, please follow us on your preferred platform. You can leave us questions and comments or shoot us an email at fandomsculturemurder at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell us your opinions on these verses. Exactly, and let us know if there's any topics you want us to cover as well. I think it'd be fun to sit there and take you know options for people who are actually listening. Bye, thanks for listening. Bye.